Hello everyone, I am your host Aritra Ghosh and today we are joined by Raghav Segal who is originally from India and is a second year PhD student in computational biology and bioinformatics. Welcome to the podcast Raghav. Thanks Aritra. Uh, so, as you know, we have been talking to uh, many PhD students in this podcast, and today Raghav has uh, joined us to talk to us about his research and also about his life and how he ended up here at Yale. So, Raghav, uh, why don't you begin with kind of like an elevator pitch of your research for our listeners? Sure. So, the short answer is I'm trying to measure aging in humans. Uh so the question one might ask is, why do research on that when number of years from a person's birthday can tell you how old they are? Well, what you just defined or what we just defined is what we call, what longevity researchers call as chronological age. But here's the thing, if chronological age was a very good predictor of aging, then everyone would die at the same chronological age. But as we know, that's not the case. Uh, as a species, we die at a wide variety, wide range of ages. And this is because in some people, aging happens faster or slower than normal due to a mix of environmental and biological factors. Now, the whole thing is that we want to kind of find this personalized age which informs whether we are aging faster or slower. And this personalized age is called as biological age. Now, here's the thing about biological age. Unlike chronological age, we do not have a defined way of calculating biological age. Rather, we can only measure and estimate uh, for a person's biological age. Now, building better biological estimates is essentially one of the key parts of my research. But I just don't stop there. As we know, even if two people die at the same age, they might die of two very different diseases. For example, one person may die of cardiovascular disease, such as heart attack, while someone else may die of a brain-related disorder, such as Alzheimer's. Now, this tells us something very valuable, that not everyone who's aging at the same rate ages similarly. <clears throat> Take Take, for example, the two people we just talked about. The person who died of heart conditions potentially had a very accelerated heart aging, while the one who died of Alzheimer's had a very accelerated brain aging. In other words, every system and organ in our body ages at a different rate. And to truly capture biological aging, we need to understand at what rate each of our systems are aging. This would in turn actually help us in building targeted therapies to reverse aging in specific systems. Now discovering and quantifying this kind of heterogeneity in aging by understanding aging in different systems is essentially the effective goal of my PhD. Oh, sounds, sounds interesting. So essentially what you're saying is, let's say I was born in 93 and this year I will turn 29, but you're saying my that's my chronological age and my biological age of different organs could be different, right? That is absolutely correct. You might be really good at doing exercise and so your heart might be really young. Yeah, I'm very young at heart, rather. Yeah. Very young at heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating because age is, I guess when we colloquially talk about age, we don't really think about it uh, in this way. So... Uh, in order to kind of figure out like bi better biological estimates of age, uh, what have you been doing uh, to 
like find that could you like take us a little bit deeper into your research sure so it all starts with a type of bio- biomolecular information called epigenomics all of you must know dna the instructions of life that is present in every single cell of your body mm-hmm. now the study of dna and genes it encodes is called genomics well epigenomics literally translates to epi meaning above or upon and genomics in other words epigenomics is the study of molecules mm-hmm. other than the basic structure of dna that are still part of the dna okay now one such molecule is what we call as a methyl group which is a carbon with three hydrogen atoms that gets added on to certain parts of our dna mm-hmm. here's the interesting thing about these methyl groups or what we call as methylations that they are very good at predicting aging in our body. Mm-hmm. Now, I use this methylation information extracted from a, from a patient's uh, blood to build models that predict aging in our body. But the question is what do I predict in these models? You might recall something called biological age which we were just talking about mm-hmm. and the other thing about biological age that we just talked about is It, there is no sort of canonical way of measuring it like the way we measure chronological age mm-hmm. now partly my work essentially involves building this uh, biological age and for this purpose i use a mix of molecular biomarkers such as cholesterol for heart uh, and physiologic biomarkers such as blood pressure for heart or cognitive test scores for brain uh, or even radiographic biomarkers such as x-ray or for lungs or ultrasound for liver mm-hmm. now i build these models that predict these different biomarkers using epigenetic information which in turn is used to predict time to death in individuals mm-hmm. and now use a wide variety of machine learning approaches to essentially build uh these models and build these predictions. Mm, interesting, interesting. So essentially you're using these so epigenetics if I understand how you explained it correctly is these molecules which are not exactly part of the DNA but are somehow associated with it in some way. They ways. they they are essentially they get attached to the DNA. They get attached to the DNA. They okay. sometimes get attached, they sometimes get removed. Mm. Um the really cool thing about epigenetics in general is that not only it's co- is it corresponding of aging but it's also corresponding of various environmental uh factors uh around us so if you get stress mm-hmm. your epigenetics changes mm. uh stress of any kind actually leads to changes in your epigenetics and if you think about it aging is just another form of biological stress mm. that's fascinating so essentially these like even environmental factors what's happening around us can cause let's say me and another person to have different responses exactly. and that will be encoded in our epigenetics yes wow wow that's really cool um so you have now explained to us a little bit about like what you do uh let me ask you what uh do you hope or like what are large implications of your research and what do you hope will be kind of the coolest implications of your research. Yeah, so I think from the get go one of the biggest implications would be that this will essentially allow for a blood test where you can quantify aging in different systems. So, here's the thing, there are already blood tests out there, epigenetic blood tests mm-hmm. that quantify aging in your whole body. Mm-hmm. But now for example, you go to a doctor and your doctor tells you retro you're 2 years older than you should be, mm-hmm. hypothetically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh Now what can you really do about that? There is nothing you can actually 
do to change that biological age. There's no information around, hey, why are you two years older than you actually should be? Mm -hmm. By this particular test, we actually now will be able to tell you that, hey, you're two years older. And the reason you're two years older is probably because, say, your liver aging is really fast Mm -hmm. or your kidney aging is really fast Mm -hmm. because your kidney is aging four times, is four years older than it should be. Mm -hmm. And so... Now we can actually start figuring out that why is a person aging faster Mm -hmm. and potentially even start having interventions for that. So, for example, if your heart is aging faster, then I would, as a doctor, prescribe you more cardiovascular related exercises Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, So that is one of the biggest implications. Another really big uh, implication which we didn't think about when we were doing this research but mm-hmm. uh, it came about while we were doing this more towards the end of the research was FDA doesn't uh, recognize aging as a disease mm-hmm. and part of the problem for that is that there is no m- tangible measurable outcome for mm-hmm. aging so say you have a uh, you have a therapy that says that can slow down heart aging, mm-hmm. right? Uh, FDA would say that the only way to prove that it slows down heart aging is to show that there are lesser cardiovascular events, as in lesser heart attacks in your clinical trials. Mm-hmm. But to run a clinical trial like that, you'll require 10,000, pa- 50,000 patients over a span of 10 years. Mm-hmm. Clearly a very expensive clinical trial, Uh, that might not be successful. Mm -hmm. So no company really wants to invest in that. Mm. Using these measures, actually, you can tell whether heart is aging slower or faster in just maybe a year Mm -hmm. in just using maybe 1,000 patients. So significantly making these clinical trials cheaper and thereby allowing a wide variety of aging therapies to kind of enter Uh, the clinical trial phases that have not been able to do so because of the limitations uh, of uh, the outcomes to be measured. Mm -hmm. Um, Another very important uh, uh, sort of use case that I see is that think about these measures as not just telling you, say you're two years older or two years younger in your heart age or kidney age or lung age or so on and so forth. Uh, Think about them as telling you whether you're healthy or not, whether your heart is healthy or not. Mm -hmm. Now, if you start thinking about it this way, you can almost think of them as like these blood biological tests that you take, like a metabolic panel or an immune panel or Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, right? But now you need to take only one test Mm. that can tell you about aging in these like 11 different systems, such as lung, kidney, brain, blood, immune, so many sort of different organs. This would typically not be possible, right? You mm-hmm. Or you would have to take like 15 different blood draws and like very expensive tests mm-hmm. uh, or maybe even go for an ultrasound and stuff like that uh, and would require a lot of time and money, uh, something which a lot of the population doesn't have, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but these tests could just take like just one blood draw and essentially tell you the health of all of these different systems. Mm-hmm. And so... This, I think, in my opinion, is is going to really transform the way mm-hmm. we do sort of medical health uh, mm-hmm. diagnosis and prognosis for diseases. And another way kind of on the same lines of the blood test is that 
think about going when you look at one of your blood panels uh you typically go and say look at say cholesterol in mm-hmm. your uh metabolic uh, or lipid blood panel sorry uh and it would say that your cholesterol is in the normal range but you see the normal range has been defined for a very large population mm-hmm. right that might not be specific for you so you might have low cholesterol but that cholesterol might that low amount of cholesterol might still be causing a lot of heart aging because mm. of your biology or because of certain environmental factors so what you really are looking for is kind of an individualized measure that can tell you that hey is this cholesterol really causing aging and potentially increasing my risk of cardiovascular mm. disease this can actually be done by these epigenetic scores right because we're telling you specifically to you as compared to your age how much is your age uh, of your heart or your kidney or your liver so mm. this is very specific to you it's very personalized and so it it gives this sense of uh, you're not kind of missing out your information is not being missed out because you're looking at like a population specific mm. data that's that's very interesting because you know every time i when i go for my yearly things to the yale health center with the all these panels and these blood reports there are these normal ranges that mm-hmm. are mentioned and i have often wondered that i keep hearing about st- statistics that maybe 60% or 70% people have high cholesterol or whatever some x amount mm-hmm. i'm like okay but who defined these normal levels exactly <laughs> and and here's the thing right and science is great but some science is also kind of biased by the researchers who are doing this mm-hmm. and a lot of these normal ranges have been defined in say 200 years back when mm-hmm. a lot of uh, people of color uh, mm-hmm. weren't part of science necessarily mm-hmm. so a lot of these normal ranges have typically been defined for white european caucasian populations mm-hmm. and i very often do not work in say people like us mm-hmm. south asians who have a very different biology altogether mm. it's fascinating so essentially your research could help us move away from the one size fits all model and could really with these tests and different things give personalized recommendations to people to improve their health basically. that's actually correct that's that's fascinating um so moving a little bit away from your research raghav uh we also like to use this podcast to tell uh, give a view to our listeners where our phd students come from how they have ended up here so where did you grow up and how did you end up with this love for kind of machine learning and biology right so i was born in delhi uh india which is the capital of india and uh, i was born there i lived there i was raised there went to school there went to college there did pretty much everything in delhi before moving um to new haven mm-hmm. um and um so and and my family has been in delhi for generations and uh, it's kind of like delhi is just this place that i associate with very strongly mm-hmm. uh kind of in my blood mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. uh and but here's the thing uh i my interest in kind of biology started at a uh, at a very young age uh when i lost uh both my grandparents to cancer oh. um i think i was 6 years when my grandmother passed away and eight when my grandfather passed away from cancer mm. and so having seen my parents kind of do these constant rounds of the hospitals trying to figure out what this disease was mm-hmm. it was really in sort of it kind of got this curiosity within me that why 
does a disease sort of lead to such kind of terrible death mm-hmm. um and that kind of opened these doorways to thinking about biology and my interest in it and so when i was in school uh i kind of really got interested in biology and in in my latter years in my high school you have this choice of kind of taking up uh your subjects mm-hmm. and so the ones i took were pretty standard physics chemistry mathematics and english uh but the fifth subject uh you can pretty much choose from and people do economics people do computer science people do biology mm-hmm. i actually took a subject that pretty much i think one other person in my school took is called biotechnology mm. uh which was effectively how do you use the information the new age of information that you're getting in biology mm-hmm. to essentially revolutionize uh medical uh health or discoveries in biology mm-hmm. and that kind of kind of took me to a whole new level of uh understanding and excitement for biotech so you were one of these cool people in school who were taking like very trendy subjects like it, different it, wasn't, it wasn't trendy I'll be honest <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't trendy actually i was i was considered uh odd for oh. having that physics chemistry biotech uh uh combination because no one took it mm-hmm. no one in my college school took it mm-hmm. everyone was like if they were doing biotech they were probably studying biology as well mm-hmm. uh but i just felt like it was i i i i here's the thing i cannot do biology unfortunately i'm mm-hmm. very honest about it i'm not good at biology i cannot remember the things the way sort of medical professionals can it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a whole different skill set mm-hmm. um, so you're not into flash cards <laughs> not into flash cards at all uh but I I I do really like thinking about how can we use the information in biology mm-hmm. uh to find solutions uh to sort of human disease and human uh health problems. Um and that was really interesting to me. Uh which I was something that I was able to do in biotech but not while studying biology necessarily. That's fascinating. It's like these early on events and your selection of subjects kind of have kind of moved you towards your current research uh plans um moving on raghav so you grew up in delhi spent all this time in delhi uh, how did you end up crossing oceans and continents and coming here to new haven at yale right so interesting thing even though i was really into biotech mm-hmm. uh i ended up doing my undergrad in a very generic degree of electronics and communication engineering mm-hmm. partly that's to do with the fact that there is this uh, south asian mindset of kind of doing like the standard engineering mm-hmm. uh, degrees and i was like sure why not uh, mm-hmm. biotech is like more of my fascination mm-hmm. and then everyone told me around me everyone who i knew of that you'll never be able to kind of do something really cool in biotech there's no scope for biotech in mm-hmm. india and i was like okay i guess i'll just do like something what everyone else is doing mm-hmm. and so i wasn't again this is funny i wasn't ever into computer science like i i didn't like coding necessarily mm-hmm. um so i was like okay i don't really like coding but i do really like these concept of circuits and stuff like that so mm-hmm. maybe i'll go into electronics and that's what i ended up doing but as a chance of events might happen during the uh during the third uh, the summer before my third year this company uh uh called uh Givomix uh came to my campus uh mm-hmm. for uh sort of hiring interns mm-hmm. and uh this was like a 
bioinformatics computational biology company uh, and I was really interested so I, but unfortunately no none of the EC kids electronics kids were allowed to sit in that uh, process mm. uh, because it was like comp bio so only computer science kids were you know, in it. but I kind of went to my placement coordinator and I was like can I please go and sit <laughs> this is like really interesting to me and <laughs> it's it's again like such a turn of events they gave a computer science test which I failed miserably at mm. I failed miserably at so there was no chance that I was going to get through. Uh, but the thing what happened was when they were giving their sort of talk, mm-hmm. I was like asking a lot of questions and I was uh. like really interested. And as chance would be, I was literally passing by where uh, the interviews were happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to a class and one of the founders of the company uh, who was giving the talk uh, saw me and he was like, hey, uh, aren't you part of the interviews? And I was like, nah, I, I didn't get through the computer science round. And he said, just just wait here. Uh, and he went inside and I think, I don't know what he said to the placement coordinator. Mm-hmm. He said, like, he would like to interview me. Um, and then he interviewed me and selected me. And I was like, I don't know why he really selected me. I wasn't really even sure. Uh, I had a really good mustache. I still do. And I thought it was probably because of my mustache. Um, but uh, maybe I, I was looking really different. That's why they selected me. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I started working at GVOMIX. Uh, I spent a summer uh, at GVOMIX uh, kind of uh, solving this uh, problem of predicting what kind of prostate cancer patients should we enroll enroll in clinical trials? So one of Mm -hmm. the problems is that when you're enrolling patients uh, for clinical trials, very often they will not last the period of the clinical trial. Mm. So you want to enroll patients that are still severely ill, but Mm -hmm. not so severely ill that they will uh, sort of uh, die between the sort of clinical trial period because Mm. that's a lot of loss of money for these companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so I was essentially working on predicting that. um, And that project went really well. We were taking part in this competition called the Dream Cancer Comp Challenge or something like that. And we were competing with kind of institutes like Harvard and Yale uh, and Berkeley. And we came like second in that competition. Wow. And I think that kind of just kind of got me back mm. into uh, uh, this mode of like looking back at biotech. Uh, and so what happened was when I my internship was ending... Unfortunately, GVOMIX as a startup got dissolved. Oh. Um, and that was terrible news for me because I was like, okay, I want to work in this company. Mm-hmm. Um, but as chance would be, one of the co-founders who I was working with uh, decided to still pursue in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And he started a new company mm-hmm. uh, called Elucidata. Uh, in, actually, it was in my fourth year when he started this company. And he called me up and said that, hey, I'm starting this new company. Do you want to join? I'm like, I'm still in college. I don't know if I <laughs> want to join. I have a job at this as, as like a data scientist at this kind of uh, at McKinsey. And I, I'm not sure if I really want to <laughs> go in my and, and go into like uh, a startup. And, mm-hmm. and he was like, OK, come work part time. It might be interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was like, OK, I'll work part time during my during my undergrad years. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in my fourth year. I didn't really have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At this point, mm-hmm. uh, I had a job in hand. I was like, uh, whatever. Now I just need nothing to, graduate. to lose. Yeah. yeah, nothing to lose. I just need to graduate and do like the basic amount of courses. So I, I spent like a, about like uh, 
three to four days every week uh, working at uh, Elucidator. And that mm-hmm. point, I think there were three people in the organization, the two co-founders and one other person. Mm-hmm. And um, I was working part-time and I kind of really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problems that they were solving felt like problems uh, that I was really interested in. And I felt like they would have huge impacts. Mm. Um, and... Uh, to the absolute dismay of my parents, I left my job. Uh, I, I decided to sort of drop out of my job as a data scientist mm-hmm. from McKinsey and decided to kind of take up this startup job, which my parents were like absolutely <laughs> not in favor of. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I was like, no, I, I think that this is, this is something I want to do. And I think this is something that I feel will bring me a lot of uh, personal Mm. satisfaction. And so I took like, uh, I think almost, I got paid like a third of what I was being paid at Mm -hmm. McKinsey. And so uh, I was like, whatever. And so I I took that job up uh, at the startup and I really enjoyed it. Um, Within like the first year, second year, I was working as the data scientist. I was kind of leading uh, the data science work at the company. And then soon we decided to launch products, uh, these computational biology products for pharmaceutical companies. And so I transitioned into leading the product development uh, of those products. And that actually, uh, as a product manager, as the lead product manager, I interacted with a lot of these pharmaceutical companies and academic labs. Mm-hmm. One of those academics lab, uh, academic labs were actually at Yale. Mm. And uh, so after like spending about four years, I was kind of getting like, okay, what do I really <laughs> do next? This is interesting. I, I like product management. I like kind of thinking about these problems, but I feel like I'm still not close enough to the science. Like I still don't mm-hmm. know enough science. So I was doc- talking about this with uh, one of the professors at Yale who I was working with. I was visiting the States and he was like, do you want to come and spend some time in my lab? And I was like, hmm, that sounds interesting. <laughs> uh, and so I took up a postgrad position at Yale, which was <laughs> again a terrible dismay for my parents because I was like, they were like you're doing so well the startup is doing so well you're gonna make money and I'm like nah I want to just like leave everything and go into like academia in this like really small not well-paying job mm-hmm. <laughs> because I find it interesting and mm-hmm. so I did that and as chance would be within like three four months of being in that program I was like this is this is what I want to do and I applied for my PhD mm-hmm. and I got through Yale and the rest is history. Wow, wow. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating journey uh, that you have had uh, to Yale. And so being an international student, Raghav, mm-hmm. has, um, has that given you a unique perspective about your research or how has it kind of affected your research? Yeah, so I think uh, being international has, has really enabled me to think about my research more critically uh, as I said, a lot of my research uh, that is that we do here, a lot of the data that is collected has typically been uh, for Caucasian white populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of these models prior to what I've been doing have been very sort of Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I really wanted to do in my research was kind of walk away from that uh, and build models that were more incorporative of a large variety of uh, uh, people. Um, and so I was very cautious when I was working with these models that the kind of data I incorporated in building these models was uh, was uh, representative 
of the kind of populations these data sets would be uh, or these models would be working for. And so I actively sort of chose data sets that had high uh, sort of uh, percentage of POCs mm -hmm. as compared to sort of white individuals so that we build models that are better and can be used by more people. I think another way kind of how um, my research was really interesting to me and has been kind of having a very strong implication on myself is mm -hmm. during my time about of actually doing this research, uh, I got to know a very interesting fact. Um, so you might, a lot of people might know, and you might know this, that South Asians are very prone to a lot of uh, metabolic diseases, mm -hmm. metabolic diseases such as heart attacks uh, and diabetes uh, and uh, a wide variety of sort of these other uh, uh, sort of meta metabolism related diseases. And what I learned was that, if you recall, I talked about how our epigenetics are influenced by our environment. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's not just this. Not only will your epigenetics be influenced by the environment, sometimes part of these epigenetics get passed down to the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the really big reasons why, why South Asians are more prone to sort of these metabolic diseases has been a hypothesis that our ancestors uh, had to go through conditions uh, where they did not have enough food. Uh, so their bodies were programmed mm -hmm. such that uh, they store more fat. So whenever mm -hmm. they get a chance to uh, get food, the first thing they would do is store fat mm -hmm. for future. Uh, and if you think about our history as a, as a people, uh, we know that during sort of the colonial eras, uh, there were multiple famines mm. uh, that uh, our population, uh, that the South Asian population had to go through. Mm -hmm. And this partly has led to a change in our epigenetics, mm. uh, which has caused that a lot of our body's fat uh, gets stored. And so our metabolism has changed. And as you understand, if our bodies are storing more fat, we're more obese, more prone to diseases such as cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease, mm. and diabetes. Uh, and which is why, in a way, when I was doing a lot of my research, I was very cautious of that I need to incorporate such information mm. into the models that I'm building. Mm -hmm. uh, because at the end of the day, these epigenetics that we are talking about, at the end of the day, these epigenetic texts are going to predict for cardiovascular disease, they're mm. going to predict for fatty liver disease, they're mm. going to predict for diabetes. Um, so we should be incorporating these variations that are out there, uh, uh, that are part of our histories and our, uh, and our epigenomics, uh, uh, something that was not being done previously. That's, that's very fascinating. And uh, listeners probably don't know, but I grew up in... Uh, West Bengal, a state in eastern India, and uh, West Bengal went through one of the worst man-made uh, famines uh, yeah. during colonial British rule in India. And it's uh, it's so interesting to think that modern research is finding out how events which happened so long ago, much before I was born yep. uh, in India, how that can have a lasting impact even across generations on my biology. So. Yeah. It's 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 very interesting. It's it's to talk a little more about just that famine, and I feel very politically strongly about it. Mm -hmm. Ten million people died mm -hmm. uh, during that famine just in West Bengal. 
Mm-hmm. We don't even know the numbers across sort of the South Asian continent. Mm-hmm. Compare that with the number of deaths that happened during the same time in World War II. Mm-hmm. And that number is relatively smaller mm-hmm. uh, compared to the number of deaths that have happened in the South Asian continent. Mm-hmm. Now think about it. World War II had such a strong implication on people, mm-hmm. right, in the European world. Mm-hmm. Yet we'd never talk about the implications of it on sort of South Asia, mm-hmm. where clearly there were very strong effects mm-hmm. and effects that were not just uh, financial or that might last a few decades, mm-hmm. but effects that would last generations, uh, centuries that have been captured mm-hmm. in our biology. And it's, it's interesting to ponder upon that for me. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, as a South Asian and I earlier I knew different uh, different parts of our culture in West Bengal, which has been affected by famines. Uh, people in West Bengal eat a lot of, if they make use of even the the skin of vegetables to yep. make certain things. And that's primarily because they had to use whatever they yep. could get during the famine. But also, so I previously I knew that it has definitely impacted our food habits, our culture in general, different mm-hmm. things, but also biology. It's, it's very interesting. It's yep. very interesting. So uh, I could keep talking about this to you forever, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but kind of moving towards kind of wrapping this episode up. Uh, let me ask you, what what do you think that you are still early on in your PhD? You have some time left to go towards your end. What do you hope kind of will be the biggest impact of your research? Because clearly you are doing the kind of research which has very quick impact on modern life or personal yeah. life of people. What do you think will be the kind of the biggest impact of your research? I think uh, my research has a potential of transforming the way we look <coughs> at age-related diseases, which is pretty much almost all diseases at this point, whether it's heart attacks, diabetes, uh, whatever disease you think about nowadays, even cancer for that matter, is an age-related disease. And the reason for that is that a lot of modern medicine is what we call as reactive. Mm -hmm. So once you get a disease, do we try to control it? So once you get a heart attack, then we start giving you these beta blockers and stuff like that. Or once you get uh, uh, Alzheimer's, do we start to try to prevent Alzheimer's or slow down the progression of Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. I think that the way to think about prevention is you start... Uh, slowing down this process of aging much sooner, a Mm -hmm. lot sooner before the disease has already happened. And this is what I see as preemptive medicine. Mm. Uh, You're preemptively uh, solving or predicting and looking at that, hey, this might be a disease that you might have in future. Mm -hmm. So I would rather slow, like slow down or put have interventions that that prevent that disease from happening sooner. Uh, This actually brings a very interesting concept of what we call as health spans versus lifespan. So Mm -hmm. a person, what we have really improved over the last, uh, say, 100 odd years, we've really almost doubled our lifespans. Mm -hmm. Uh, But our health spans have not really changed or Mm -hmm. the time where we live healthy lives without diseases that's pretty much remained stagnant Mm. uh the first occurrence of like a major disease is typically the same probably like five years later Mm -hmm. as compared to what it was 100 years ago Mm -hmm. and so a lot of my research is aiming at changing that Mm -hmm. we really want to expand the health span that we have that Mm -hmm. 
even though the life you might have a lifespan of 100 years but if you're suffering for diseases from the age of 60 40 years of your life have gone in suffering from diseases mm. right you don't want that you if you want to live up to 100 probably you want to suffer for like 10 years from diseases <laughs> ideally speaking mm. um and so to do that right you have to change how you look at medicine you have to mm. change how medicine is 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 practiced how the therapies that you build are not reacting to a disease they are preventing a disease from the get go mm. um and that to me is something that my research would hopefully enable not just in the sense that in the clinic where doctors are able to tell you that hey you're aging faster let's uh, somehow stop it but also how medicines are be- being built in clinical trials mm-hmm. so i think i think my research has a huge scope right from clinic right to pharmaceutical discovery mm-hmm. uh, in changing this paradigm from being reactive medicine to being preventive medicine yeah that's uh that's kind of yeah it's very interesting how like impactful the work uh that you're doing is and i hope that the listeners who are listening to us today maybe uh that your research in a few years maybe half a decade or a decade that uh they will be taking some of these therapeutics or these blood tests and maybe they will remember this interview that they heard <laughs> some time back no, and I, be thanking you for... i i think that would be the dream um we are sort of planning on uh, patenting some of this research so mm. that uh, other we can license it to companies and i and there's a lot of interest around it i'm really excited about that and i really hope that this is able to have implications not just in northern america mm-hmm. right but in actually places where it's required mm-hmm. after all these tests we are talking about are going to be significantly cheaper they're going to mm-hmm. be uh, because now you don't have to do these 15 tests you don't have to take 15 blood draws mm-hmm. uh, uh and rather this kind of epigenetic test can actually be done in just 10 dollars mm. um so hopefully we are able to not just bring these changes to kind of this american uh, population but to actually a lot of groups of people who have never had the opportunity uh to have this kind of healthcare uh, be provided to them hopefully this would change that wow wow so yeah really kind of global being an international you yourself are a global person i could define that <laughs> here having a global impact on everyone's lives so uh i hope all of you have uh enjoyed listening to this whirlwind tour of raghav's life and his research here at yale uh i want to thank you raghav for taking time out of your weekend to speak to us No, thank you Aritro for inviting me. It was really exciting to actually share my research at a public platform. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. It has been fascinating talking to you. And I hope all of you listeners will join us again uh for our next episode when we'll be joined by another PhD student just like Raghav who will talk about their research and their life at Yale. Thank you so much for joining us. This was very good. Okay.